give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last first this is the word of the lord for us this morning would you bow your heads in prayer with me dear heavenly father we thank you that your word is open to us and we thank you and praise you that you have revealed yourself through your son jesus christ and it is in your word that we see clearly who he is and what you would call us to do lord if we repent and believe in him lord we thank you for the gathering this morning and we pray that our hearts would be open and tender available ready to receive the food of your word and lord clear our minds from the distractions of life lord allow us this time and space and moment to hear you clearly and deeply and let us be full, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, I'd like to focus on the first part of these verses, verses 17 through 22, as there's this incredible picture and this incredible dialogue between Jesus and this young man. And then next week, I'll, uh, by, by God's grace, I'll be returning with you and we'll continue uh, in these verses. So I do pray that you will meditate on these verses this week, uh, both um, previous to today, but also as we move forward into next Sunday. Um, when I come up to prepare to preach, I often start thinking about religion in America. As many of you may know, I, I'm a sociologist, I'm a statistician, I think in numbers, I barely do math, so don't worry, statistics are not math. Um, but uh, I often start to meditate on the culture we live in and the beliefs that many people carry about things like God, about things like heaven and hell. Because it helps clarify for me what is my role in this culture. Now that the word of the Lord is open to me, and many of you know that for the majority of my life, the word of the Lord was not open to me, for I did not believe. And as I was meditating on this, of course, I went up and looked up some statistics. Um, once again, more than 8 out of 10 people believe in God in this country. Still. Shrinking decade by decade, but still, over 8 out of 10 people say they believe in God with some certainty. 
And that makes me think and wonder. And over seven out of 10 people believe in heaven. And I was actually quite surprised by that. So in this story here, we have a man, a young man who is truly interested in a question that many today may still be interested. How do we get to heaven? What is it that I must do to get to heaven? And in opening this sermon, I'd like to bring to you four points, four points this morning that helped me, and I pray will help you this morning, look at this initial interaction between Jesus and this young man. And our first point this morning is a question about the law. A question about the law. As Jesus is preparing to go on a journey, a journey that would eventually lead him to the cross. As he was setting out on his journey, as we read in verse 17, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to be in heaven? What must I do to be with God forever? Now, this is a good question. It is a good question because it has some important truths attached to it. Number one, this young man says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He knows that heaven is outside of him. He must have it passed on to him. He cannot make it happen on his own. We throw around the phrase heaven on earth, but I'm very careful about that phrase these days because there is no heaven on earth. For there's nothing we can do to recreate that which will be eternal after this age is over. But it is a good question. Secondly, this man asks about eternity. This is a wonderful place to be. I would like to know more about not this world that will end, for we all know that we will die. There are very few of us, unless you are still a very young man, who think we are invincible. I was one of those young men, and life has taught me some painful lessons, beginning in the knees and moving up. I am no longer invincible. I live through the invincibility of my five sons. But I do want to meditate on eternity because there is something. There must be something outside of this temporal world. And in the Matthew account of this story, the man writes, the man speaks to Jesus and says, what good deeds must I do? This is also an important point. This man knows that morally neutral or bad deeds are not going to get me into heaven. For there are many of those who say they believe in heaven that may say, state also it does not matter what you do in this world. For God is full of grace and loves everyone and will not abandon anyone no matter what we do here. But no. There is something important to know that eternal life is eternal. It is an inheritance, and good deeds are involved. So this man comes to Jesus, runs to Jesus, and there is a sincerity about him. I want you to know that truly. This man is sincere. He may be vexed in his spirit. He wants to come to the good teacher. He kneels at the feet of Jesus. 
And there's no indication that this is anything other than a sincere desire to come to one who has authority. And he addresses Jesus as good teacher. I think he acknowledges Jesus as a moral authority. You have an answer for me. And I'm coming to you. But this man is lacking something. In the text, I think there's this tension that he is uncertain about something. He is asking the question because he does have a missing piece of the puzzle. He is missing something. And he comes to Jesus with his uncertainty and with his lack of assurance. And so with this opening uh, action scene, we continue and we open up the dialogue between Jesus and this man. And in verse 18, as Jesus receives this man at his feet, Jesus says to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, this is not the easiest verse to understand. And there are competing interpretations. But this morning, I'd like to put forth a general, uh, well-received interpretation, given the person and work of Christ. What is Jesus saying here that, why do you call me good? And the emphasis here is me. Why do you call me good? There is no good except God alone. One, one general explanation is that this man rushes to him, kneels at his feet, is full of emotion, is full of uncertainty, and addresses Jesus in a way that no one else has. Good teacher. And maybe Jesus is trying to correct him and set the stage for a clear discussion there is none good but God. Calm down. Relax. Uh, you know, Jesus, of course, is good because he is God. But maybe he is saying, let us put the focus on God the Father right now before we begin this conversation. Let me redirect your energy as you've rushed to me and kneeled at my feet. Rightly so. But let us put the focus instead to God the Father in whom resides all perfect goodness. All goodness. And so we have this incredible opening story here. A question about the law. So these are good thoughts to have. Eternal life. How to inherit it. And this is, these are discussions I hope that we have. Often with each other. As well as with those in the outside world. If seven out of ten people you meet actually be, believe in heaven already, why not talk about heaven? This is such an easy introduction to a discussion about your faith. The majority of people in this country will know something about this word heaven. And yet I will warn you, even though seven out of ten people think, uh, believe in heaven, the majority of them think that their belief comes from common sense, not religion. That it just makes sense to believe in heaven, which is interesting because God has put in them, I believe, the belief in eternity. We have this striving desire to believe that there is something more than us. That is why we try to maintain our youth so powerfully. Because growing old and dying belies the truth that there is something else. And yet most people do not turn to a source, a religious source for this understanding. They just believe it to be true. So be ready to engage with them. 
Be ready to have a conversation that opens up. Why do you think about heaven? What do you think it is? And here we continue. Point number two, a response from the law. Jesus asked a question about the law inherently because we know this because he responds from the law. In verse 19, Jesus responds, You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. So this man who comes up to him is a Jew. He's a, we know, he's a wealthy young man. In other gospel accounts, he's a ruler. He has authority over people. So this man was well embedded in the religion of his day. He was a good Jewish follower. So Jesus replies in the same language and in the same understanding of the religion that both of them shared, saying, you know the commandments. You know them. Now, much could be said about these commandments. I will say that these commandments are not all of the Ten Commandments. There are some missing. And the ones emphasized here by Christ reflect man's relationship to man. Are we doing good things to each other? And this is the test. This is the statement. This is the mirror he puts up to this man. And much, much might be made of this list, and we could, we could spend many, many minutes and hours debating this list in detail, but I will just say in, in passing, there are some interesting aspects of this list. One, coveting one of the commandments is not listed. And some commentators said, well, this man was wealthy. Coveting would have been maybe not an issue for him, for he had and could access all the wealth and resources he needed. But secondly, Jesus includes defrauding, which is not technically in the Ten Commandments as passed down to Moses. Now, this is interesting. Some say, well, this is an extension of lying or stealing. But to a wealthy person, maybe this is important. This man may have been in business, and defrauding was a possible problem for those who were in wealth, you know? And we know this to be true. When I steal something, it's stealing. But if, if you work in a multinational corporation and steal millions of dollars, it's embezzlement. We even have different words. I cannot steal a million dollars no matter how hard I would try. I do not have access to that world. So it's interesting that this list includes um, something about defrauding. And this brings us back to our reading this morning about the shrewd manager. What was he doing? He was defrauding his boss. <laughs> he was cooking the books, as we say. Uh, for money and power are among those in society who have access to them and who can use them. But what I'm curious about is the exclusion. Jesus excludes the first four commandments. Now let me repeat them to you here, because these commandments deal with our relationship to God. I am the one true God, and your Lord no other, have no other gods before me. First commandment. The second, no, make no idols. Create none, nor worship none. The third commandment, you will not take the Lord's name in vain. And the fourth commandment, the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. These commandments focus our attention rightly on our relationship to God first before our relationship to others. And this is echoed in Jesus' own words when asked in another 
part of the scriptures, what is the most important commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But here, Jesus does not open this discussion on eternal life with loving the Lord your God. And I think this is important for us to remember. Because in verse 20, this, this rich young man, possibly in all sincerity, responds, All these I have kept since my youth. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for affirming that I've done well. My good deeds have been met. I'm on the right track. I was uncertain, lacking confidence. And yet, in that moment, I think this young man may have had the answer he was looking for, the affirmation he sought. And at first blush, I will say, I'm a little jealous of this young man. For I could not, if Jesus came to me and said, keep his commandments, I would say, ooh, I definitely have not done that, Lord. I have not loved my neighbor as myself. I have sinned. So there is much for this young man to say, maybe rightly so. As Paul himself says, I was blameless in the external parts of the law. You could find nothing against me. I was perfect. And we know this phenomenon exists in our churches today. There are many of us who go around being perfect. And yet inside, there are challenges, there are issues, there are struggles. This is so critical because if we do not ask the right questions, if we do not make an effort to have these discussions, time may pass and it will be too late as we realize that although we were perfect on the outside, although we had met the requirements of the law, there was something amiss, there was something wrong, there was something we were missing. And also, there's something to commend here, although less so, the commandments listed here are the negative commandments. Do not. And I'm going to tell you a little secret. It is easier to do not than to do. I can go years without doing something really bad to my wife. Probably. I've got to think that one through before. <laughs> but to do the positive commands... Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your wife the way Christ loved the church. The do commandments are much harder. This man had aced the do nots. And many and most of us will never, ever be in the kind of situation where we have crossed the line, let's say, and committed heinous crimes. We, we have learned to, re, to control ourselves and do not harm others. Do not Steal, do not fraud, do not commit adultery. Many of us can go our whole lives acing the do nots, but the do's, the positive parts are the ones that Jesus will always challenge us with. And I think here Jesus is going to point out a bigger heart issue at work. Let's not talk about external do nots. Let's talk about do's because do's end up coming from the heart. True love will, will show itself in how you do things to people, not how you do not do things to people. This is the final frontier. So it is important in our spiritual states. It's important to take a look at our external lives. Let's be clear about that. Good works should be a part 
of our good lives if we believe in Christ. If you are struggling with good works, there is work to be done. There is important diagnostic checkups that have to be made. Why are good works such a difficulty for you? But, as the scripture is so clear, good works flow from within our hearts. So eventually, if you're going to find out why you are struggling in a certain area of behavior, you will have to start to ask yourself, where is my heart? With the source of my will, why can I not come to behave in a certain way? These will be important questions that you will want to focus on. Because invariably, it's not what we do. It's why do we do what we do. The Christian world is not a sum total of what we do, but it is whom we love. So remember these as we live our daily lives. A question about the law, a response from the law. Point three, a question about the heart. A question about the heart. Jesus uses this opportunity to reveal the true heart of this man, and here is the bomb that gets dropped for this man's life. As for a fleeting moment, maybe he was assured that his obedience of the commandments would assure him of eternal life. In verse 21 we read, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. What a very dense response. There's so much here to unpack. First of all, Jesus says, uh, the, the scripture says that Jesus loved him. The verb here actually connotates possibly hugged him, put his shoulder around him with full sincerity, with full attention. Jesus, the Savior, the Son of God, looked at this man, looked deep into his heart, was about to reveal something very difficult very painful, and yet said, I love you. I'm going to do this because I love you. This is important, friends, brothers and sisters. True love speaks truth. True love speaks to the problems that we are having. True love tells us corrects us, rebukes us, encourages us, asks us the tough questions, expecting tough answers. True love of the kind that Jesus shows in this moment is one that tests us. And it is difficult to hear, you lack one thing, as Jesus says, opens up. You lack one thing. Thankfully, I have had brothers in this church and sisters who have pointed out that I lack many things. And so that is good, for I have much work to do as a believer. I have many things to fill my days before I am with the Lord. But Jesus says, you lack one thing. You might say, well, he lacked actually many things. He lacked four commandments, possibly. You know, he lacked things. And one might say quickly, well, Jesus, uh, he lacked Jesus himself. But this is a Jew. And, and, and God had revealed himself to the Jewish people and given them the law 
through which they should live their lives and please God if their hearts were in the right place. If love was the source of their desire to obey the law, God was pleased. He was pleased with his children, Israel. And yet, so often, the problem wasn't the obedience to the law, the problem for the Jews. Well, okay, often it was the obedience to the law. But they violated the first commandment so often because they did not truly love God. Jesus condenses his entire, the entire heart of the matter to the specific issue at hand. And what is the issue? This man has much wealth. And his wealth is somehow part of the lacking. Right there, Jesus says, you have much wealth, but there is something you still lack. How ironic. For so many of us think that when we are wealthy, most of our lacks, all of our lacks, float away. That being wealthy, being secure, being independent will result in the best of lives. And yet there is the challenge Jesus lays out to him. Jesus calls him to release not 10th, not 50%, but all of his wealth. All of his wealth to those who would most benefit of it, the poor, possibly because this man's love of God was extremely influenced by the amount of wealth he had. The more wealth he had, the littlest love of God remained. And Jesus upends his life and tells him, you must give to the poor all that you have. And our reading in Luke confirms that wealth indeed can be a barrier to loving from deep within our hearts, God. For we cannot serve two masters, thereby violating the first and second commandments. Wealth had become an idol for this young man. And what is the key issue here? I think it's trust. What is the key struggle for those who have wealth? For wealth in and of itself is not a bad thing. The scriptures are clear that God will bless some with wealth. But with that wealth comes an increasingly important test. Do you still trust me for everything? Do you still love me? Are you still dependent on me? This is the struggle that the New Testament clearly teaches that those who are wealthy will have a special battle upon which they must wage, and that is their trust of the things of this world versus the trust of God, and they are separate things. You cannot have both. You must exit one of them. Use your wealth for good. Praise God that you have been blessed. Support ministries. Help the poor. Protect your family from financial uh, challenges. All those are good. But where is your heart? Do you truly trust? Do you depend on God for everything? Knowing that one day you are wealthy, but are you prepared for the next day where something incredible happens and all your wealth is gone? Will you be able to respond as Job did in much more difficult fashions? For he, not, he did not lose just his wealth, but he lost his family. 
And even Job is able to respond, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That is a man who trusts God completely, even in the midst of pain and suffering, even in the midst of uncertainty. Bless the name of the Lord. And in Matthew 6, 19 through 21, we read, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Although this man's mindset was mind was set on eternal life, his heart was set on this life. Although this man was thinking good thoughts about the eternal life to come, his heart was completely enraptured and enslaved to this world. And with that bomb, with that revelation, Jesus adds one more small detail. Young man, I want you to sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Period. There it is. The true answer, the full answer, is that your heart has been corrupted. Give it all away, and I'm actually giving you the true answer, the right answer. There is no error in this test. worst thing you can do as a professor is have a test that has errors in it. There's no error in this test. Jesus says, here's the answer. You will have treasure in heaven. Do this, good Jewish follower of God, and you will be free. There it is. But then Jesus appends something. He says something wonderful, something he doesn't do to most people who come to him. He says, and come, follow me. Join me. I love you. There's something about this young man. I, you know, I want you to be part of the ministry that I'm a part of right now. What an incredible, incredible call. And I think that we have here a picture of something very important. Get rid of all your stuff. I'm going to put a word on that. Repent. Turn away from your love of stuff. Repent. Give it all away. Repent. Admit that you have loved your stuff, not God. Repent. And then Jesus says, follow me. Have faith. Be with me. This is a repentance call, I think, in Christ. Saying, go, turn. Turn to me. And this is important because this calling to Christ is part of Christ's entire ministry on this earth. I don't know if you've noticed this, but there's always a, with Christ, there's always a leave something and do something. Leave your father, join me. Leave your nets, join me. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. The Christian life is not just repenting, although that is the key beginning. The Christian life is both turning away and going to something. It is to take off the old self and put on the new self. 
You are a half Christian, if at all, if all you do is think that the Christian life is just one where we do not do things. And you forget that following Christ is a requirement. It's a requirement for being with him. And here Jesus calls this man fully to the ministry of, of himself. And you might say, well, why is Christ important in this story? Why is this little append, why is this call so important? Well, let me tell you, that's because a long time ago, God made man, and man disobeyed. Man disobeyed first in our hearts. Before Adam and Eve disobeyed the rule, the commandment, they had already made a decision in their hearts to disobey. And with that decision to disobey in their hearts, they replaced God, the king, the father, the one who brings all goodness to us. They replaced that with their own judgment and their own rules and their own thoughts about what is good and right. And we call that sin. And from then on, the Bible speaks that we are enemies of God and deserve his judgment, deserve righteously so, perfectly so, judgment for our disobedience in our hearts. But also at that time, God made a plan to redeem his people, to turn their hearts back to him through thousands of years of his coming down into our world and revealing himself through the law, revealing himself through his people, Israel, and then eventually taking on flesh and becoming man. The Son of God, Christ, part of the Trinity, who has fully loved God the Father and the Holy Spirit for all eternity, came, emptied himself, and became a man and showed us what it means to not just turn away and never sin, but to always have our hearts set on God, to always have our hearts attuned to the Father, no matter what the cost, no matter what the consequence. Little did this man maybe know, but that call was more than just a call to repentance, to, to become poor, to become completely dependent. That call would eventually include a cross for him as well. And that call is here for us today. That call to repent from your belief that I can get into heaven by doing good works, from your belief that God won't judge me no matter how uh, bad I am, that belief that if I just try hard enough in my heart, it's going to be okay, God will judge that belief as wrong. For you have not given your heart completely to him. You say you believe in him, but your heart says different. And this morning I call anyone who does not understand this, who does not know this, to think and meditate upon this, that Christ came and died for you and for me, became a perfect sacrifice, living the law perfectly, all the do's and do nots, but especially Christ loved his Father perfectly always. And if you believe in that, that Christ came and lived a perfect life and died a perfect death 
for us so that his blood and his righteousness might be then put on us and we would be judged innocent finally for the guilt that we deserve, you will repent of your own sins and you can be saved. And for the first time in your life, you will start to experience the love of God that flows from within your heart. Because when this happens, the Holy Spirit, God himself, comes into your heart. And now, for the first time, you can start to do good works that began as love. Not hope that they're love, not wish that they are, but actually are because of a love of God. And that is what Jesus calls this man to do. As we conclude, point number four, a response from the heart. What is the conclusion for this incredible call for this man? In verse 22 we read, Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Here it is on full display, this man's heart. He was disheartened. The, di- the dictionary defines disheartened as full of, um, or as a lack of assurance and a lack of confidence. But also we could include sorrowful, or a very unique word in the, Old, in the New Testament, gloomy. Countenance fallen. Everything points that this man was full of sadness and sorrows and no longer had the assurance he sought from the good teacher. Why not? This man would not sell his possessions. This man would not join Christ. He would not repent and have faith in the good teacher. He had decided by his own will that his love of wealth was more than his love of God and makes a choice. And this choice, brothers and sisters, guess this morning, this, the hold of the wealth on this man's heart has damned him to eternal damnation and hell, not eternal salvation. He came to the good teacher. He came to the right place. He asked the right question. He got the answer. He, he received the truth, and yet he chose against it. This is an incredible truth for us. When Christ asks us to command and let things go, to release things to the world, will we also be disheartened? Will we struggle? It may be wealth. It may be comfort. It may be an identity in something else. Something else other than Christ. If you have put your faith completely in Christ and say that you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, If you do that, you will be called to release all the things of the world and fill them with the things of God. This is an incredibly important test for our Christian lives. And we pray, and I pray that you would be tested and that you would have brothers and sisters come around you and and test you in this way. I'd love, I, I would like to recommend a book called Gospel Treason by Bragg Bigney where he talks about gospel drift where our hearts start to worship idols not all in one day but slowly over time we start to drift away from the love of God. And he defines an idol as anything or anyone that captures our hearts, minds, and affections more than God. 
And this is hard work. This is the final work. This is the incredibly important farm work for the heart. Because Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? If you're a Christian here this morning, this is the heart work that you should put all your effort behind. Because your heart is deceitful. And yet, if Christ is in you through the Holy Spirit, He will shine His light. He will till the ground of our heart. He will fertilize our hearts to love Him. Only if we choose and pray and commit as a body of believers, not as individuals, but together with each other's help, critically important. You cannot do this alone. When you follow Christ, when you say, Christ, I will follow you, you follow his body. Here we are. You never just follow Christ as spirit and son of God. You follow his body whom he died for. And if you are his, you are part of his body. But this is the final frontier for our lives. Starting from our hearts, will we jettison? Will we exit? Will we start to chip away at those things that have a hold on our hearts? And for you, they may be something different than they are for me. For many of us, they'll be very similar. That is why we're here in the body, so that we can connect with each other and figure out how we can minister to each other. Brother to brother and sister to sister. From the preaching of God's word on Sunday morning and Sunday school to the meeting together regularly in home groups to the meeting one-on-one -on -one, to praying for each other regularly. All of this is following God, carrying our cross, becoming more like him, moving from one degree of glory to the next. For Christ is the word of God. And the word of God is fully sufficient to rebuke and correct us of our idols by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. You have to believe that. Don't let anyone tell you differently. Don't, don't let any theories and ideas of the world tell you, well, you need the Bible plus. No. You need God's word and God's people, and the Lord will do an incredible work in your heart. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful that this morning you call us to repentance, and you call us to faith. You call us to believe, Heavenly Father, that you have a plan for us, and that is to save us, to save us from the disobedient hearts, from the rebellious hearts, from the enemy that we have within us against your rule over our lives. And we thank you, Lord, that you have called us to see truly who we are, unloving people, unholy people, dirty people, but Lord, you have made a way to wash us clean. You have made a way to make us holy. You have made a way to put your love into our hearts. And it is in Christ that all these things are possible. It is by the cross of Christ that you made a way for us to be saved, to be redeemed, to be built up, to be sanctified, and to be glorified. And Lord, now we call this morning that we would commit our lives to these truths not sit idly by and let the pleasures of the world or the fears of the world infect our hearts. But Lord, let us truly fight the good fight, the fight against our hearts. Let us make war on ourselves, Lord, 
Use your Holy Spirit to show us the darkness in the pockets of our heart. Expose our idols. Use, use love that you have for each other in the body, Lord, to show us the light, to show us who Christ is. And we pray in his holy name. Amen.